It's the second anniversary of the EU referendum, which gave us all a difficult choice. And I've got a choice for you this morning. You can either have the theory, in other words, the sermon I prepared, or you can have the practice, in other words, more of a workshop this morning. What's the workshop, I hear you ask in a somewhat nervous voice? Well, it's easy. It's simply putting into practice what we've just heard from Luke's Gospel. So you'll all get into twos. Then you'll hand over to the church wardens your purses, handbags, wallets, mobile phones, walking sticks, jackets, car keys, and any other extraneous things that you've brought to church. I'm not sure if some of you will include husbands in the extraneous things. And after that, you will go out in twos, just for the next half hour or so, to preach, heal, and cast out demons. So that's the workshop choice. How does that sound? So let's get to the vote. Hands up for the theory. Want to stay for the theory? (laughs) Hands up those who want to go on the workshop. Oh. (laughs) Hand, I have to say, the vast majority of you want neither. Well, okay, if I were braver, I would make you all do the workshop. Actually, we need both. We have to hear and read and receive the word, but it's not enough to do that. We have to do the word and put it into practice. But it is true, isn't it, that it's a lot easier and a lot less scary to sit here in church singing songs and listening to a sermon than it is to be out in the way that Jesus has sent out these disciples on this occasion. Let's face it, the worst thing that can happen to you listening to a sermon is that you're bored or your leg goes to sleep or something like that. Uh, Or someone says something you don't agree with. But it doesn't involve much by way of risk. And when I started to look at this passage a week or so, my first reaction was to groan when I read it. Well, if I've got to speak on this. My first reaction was, Lord, I don't do and can't do, I think, those things that the disciples are sent out to do. So how can I possibly speak authentically and with integrity this morning? You might be feeling the same when you read that passage. You may be feeling a little bit uncomfortable about the challenge that there is in this passage to lifestyle and to your level of trust in God. But then I ask myself, is this particular episode in the way it's framed a model for all Christians? Are all Christians, all members of all saints, commanded to be like this all of the time? Should we be selling up everything we have and going out, as it were? I think the answer to these questions is no, but. So let's dig into it to see what we can learn from it and take away and put into practice. One of the things to do when reading scripture, especially if there's a narrative, an episode to it, is to look at the characters and say, Who do I most closely identify with in this particular episode? And in this episode, there are five characters or groups of characters. Firstly, of course, there is Jesus. Then there are the twelve disciples sent out in six teams of two. Then there are the people who put them up in their homes and looked after them. Then there are the very needy those who were ill and trapped. Finally, there were those who rejected the message they were hearing. 
I wonder who you might most identify with out of those five sets of people. You might think, well, we're all supposed to be like the disciples. And yes, in a sense we are. But actually today, now, in this season of your life, it might be that you're closer to one of the other groups of people. I'm just going to look at three of them. There isn't time to look at five. Jesus, the disciples, and the people who offer their homes. So firstly, Jesus. Let's look at him as a model of how a good leader works. Ever since Jesus chose those 12, out of the scores that were following him, he'd been training them up as future leaders. And now he's decided the time has come to give them a real-life practical task, a short-term mission. This probably only lasted two or three weeks. Note that this is not him sending them off for years and years or for the rest of the life, only to be seen every few years. No, it's not that. What is he doing here that any church leader can be doing or anybody who works in any kind of group of people and has any kind of leadership role? Well, do what organizations do nowadays. He calls them away, first of all, for an away day. Come on, guys, get back from where you are. We need to get together for an away day. Probably some of them had been back at home, maybe working the fields, doing some fishing, sorting out and seeing their families. He gets them back and then must have spent time preparing them for this particular assignment. No doubt he would have answered their questions and their doubts, discussed with them who's going to go with who and who's going to go to which village. Then they're sent out, but not empty-handed. They go with his authority. Scripture says he gave them authority. They go with his authority and blessing and mandate. Secondly, they go not with material resources, but with spiritual resources. He gave them power to drive out demons and cure diseases. And then they go out with clear instructions and a clear brief. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal those who were ill. That's the task. That's the brief. So here's a model for good leaders. Delegate, resource, brief clearly, commission, trust, and take a risk with them. Good disciples become better disciples with good leaders, good mentors, good teachers. A few weeks ago at Men's Breakfast, I heard a really inspiring talk by Simon Brand. I don't, Simon's not here today. He's since given it to rendezvous. His talk was on his many traveling adventures, most of which seemed to consist of riding a bike or carrying the bike over inhospitable and inaccessible mountain regions of the world. There were lots in it that had me thinking. But one of the things I was struck by was something his mother did with him and his twin when they were about five or six years old. She would make up a simple picnic or pack lunch and send them out of the house on their bikes to have an adventure. For them, that meant pedaling a few hundred yards maybe down the road, sitting on a bench or a piece of grass, having their picnic, and cycling back again. That's what she did. Probably nowadays, police and social services would have her arrested. <laughs> but at that very early age, she was encouraging them to branch out on their own to take a risk, to become more self-reliant, 
more confident. And it obviously worked, because 20 years later, Simon was hauling his bike over the mountain ranges of Kyrgyzstan and Pakistan. Simon's mum was a good example of a good parent teaching her children to go off on their own. And Jesus here was being a leader, empowering and sending off, as a practical test, his chosen team. So now let's look at them. It says they set out, they went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Whether they liked it or not, it was put into practice time. I wonder what was going through their minds on that away day as Jesus sat them down to tell them what they've got to do. Thomas might have said, Lord, do you expect us to do that? (laughs) No way. No way. Whereas Peter might have been out the door before Jesus had finished giving the briefing, mightn't he? But my guess is they were all a bit apprehensive, all a bit incredulous as to what they were being asked and told to do. But to their credit, they did as they were asked. They were not disobedient. They were willing to, as the old hymn has it, trust and obey. At the heart of our relationship with Jesus and of discipleship is trust. Jesus trusts and entrusts us with his saving mission on earth. That is an amazing thing. And we on our part trust him that he will be with us in it and that he will enable us. Does it mean that everything goes right, whatever we put our hand to, first time or always? No. Uh, This week I've been reading a biography of John Newton, you know, the 18th century slave trader turned priest, um, author of Amazing Grace and many other hymns. He had the most amazing life. If you've never read anything about him, do. It's an extraordinary life. And this biography I've been reading is by Jonathan Aitken, who had a life a bit like Newton, who fell from grace because of his perjury, went into prison where God rescued him from the depths of despair. But this biography has a section in it about John Newton's difficult path to ordination after he had felt really strongly that God was calling him, commissioning him like the disciples. In 1758, he felt that was true, although he'd never preached a sermon, and I don't think they had lay people preaching sermons those days, really. But in later that year, he preached his first sermon. He's gone out put into practice what he believes God is calling him to do. It was a disaster. He completely dried up with an attack of nerves. Later he wrote of it, maybe this was his first mistake, I attempted to speak without notes. I set off tolerably well, though with no small fear and trembling. But before I had spoken ten minutes, my ideas forsook me. Darkness and confusion filled up their place. I stood on a precipice and could not advance a step forward. I stared at the people, and they stared at me. Not a word more could I speak, but was forced to come down from the pulpit and leave the people, some smiling, some weeping. My pride and self-sufficiency were sorely mortified. Well, that was his first experience of responding to the call. And it took actually another six years before he was allowed to become a priest, having been turned down by various bishops and archbishops. 
On the occasion we've just read, the disciples, though, seem to have met with extraordinary success. It wouldn't always be that way. uh, All but two of them were put to death. But the point is, they didn't know that when they started. They were willing to go out in trust and obedience. All faith, all acts of faith, involve a good deal of risk, putting yourself on the line, making yourself vulnerable. There's one other thing that we can note about how they were to go about their task. They were told to travel light. What do you like when you go on holiday? Can you get everything you need for a week into the carry-on bag that you can put in the hold? Or do you have to pay the £20 each way for the 20-kilo suitcase, or maybe two suitcases that you're going? Um, I doubt if you're like Simon Brand, when he went on his thousand-mile cycle rides over the mountains, apparently all he took with him was a little rucksack about that and a roll-up tent. He was traveling light. I don't suppose he is nowadays because he's got a 21-month-year-old and you know all the gear you have to take with them these days. But for those disciples, it wasn't a case of suitcases or rucksacks. They were to take nothing. By the way, it is not a general instruction for them for the rest of their lives, much less a general instruction for all Christians everywhere. If you want proof of that, just read a little bit further on in Luke, which is why you have to be really careful in balancing Scripture. Because a little bit further on in Luke, Jesus says to them, Do you remember when I sent you out without a purse and a bag and a cloak? Well, actually, now I'm telling you, you better take a bag. And if you've got a cloak, sell it because you're going to need a sword. So different occasions require different uh, uh, strategies. But for now, Jesus wants to teach them a lesson. For a few weeks, he wants them to be entirely dependent on God, but note this, and on other people. In going out with only the clothes they stand up in, they really are vulnerable. No money, no food supplies, no papyrus to prepare talks, no cloak to wrap themselves up in night if no one offers them a bed. What's the parallel for us? Well, there's the very obvious one that most of us have too much stuff. And that stuff not only takes up physical space, I can see the smiles and the nudges there, um, it takes up time and it takes up mental space, doesn't it? Homes have to be insured, cars serviced, uh, clothes laundered, meals prepared, shopping to be done, bills to be paid. Nothing wrong in any of those. But they do take over, don't they? Stuff clutters up our lives. It fills our waking hours, making us sometimes unavailable for other things, for other people. They take us away from the work of mission to just maintaining life and keeping going. That's very true of our own lives, but it can be true of church. We can be so busy keeping the clutter and the maintenance items of church going, the regular things, that we're not free to take on something new, something adventurous, something by way of risk for God. But traveling light is not just about getting rid of the physical clutter in our lives. It's about not allowing ourselves to be weighed down and encumbered by thoughts, negative thoughts, defeatist thoughts, by attitudes and by habits which would make us less useful for the kingdom of God and less able to experience all that he has for us. 
You'll recall that wonderful verse in Hebrews 12 at the beginning. Yes, I know you do. Since we have such a huge crowd of men of faith watching us from the grandstands, let's strip off everything that slows us down or holds us back. Let's run with patience the particular race that God has set before us, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. When Gez Tucker and others, I don't know if Paul is running it, running the Cotswold Way, yes, Paul is running next weekend, I think. Um, I doubt if you'll be going to be running it in heavy-duty overcoats, carrying a great rucksack on your back. <laughs> um, they'll be travelling light in order to complete the race. This morning, if you're identifying with these disciples... In what way can what they did relate to you? I guess not many of us are going to go up and cast out some demons when we go back from here. But we can take steps, even if they're small steps, in their direction. We can travel a bit lighter by getting rid of some of the physical clutter in our lives as well as spiritual clutter. And maybe some of the clutter in our lives is money. So that's an easy thing to get rid of. We can be brave and speak openly about our faith to someone. We can be a bit braver and say to somebody, would you like me, my church, to pray for you? Instead of going on, dare I say, yet another leisure holiday, perhaps we could explore doing something as a volunteer with a Christian charity for a week or two. You'll see in the news sheet, and it's been mentioned in the prayers, that that's just what Nigel Rawlinson is doing this week, along with two Bath University students and Patrick Whitworth. And uh, they had to get up at 4.30 a.m. this morning to make their way to church. You can start to do something in our community, which is in some way, even a small way, a means of bringing blessing and healing to the community. There are ways in which we can walk in the steps of the disciple as we respond to the commission. And thirdly, the supporters. This third group in this episode, the home team, the quiet ones, the ordinary person in church. Actually, nothing is written about them, but we do have a clue about them in chapter 22 of Luke. Because what Jesus says to the tells, you remember when I sent you out, I've already quoted it, without purse and bag or sandals, did you lack anything? To which they replied, nothing, Lord. So clearly, wherever they had gone, they'd been given hospitality, a bed for the night, a meal, somewhere to wash themselves, to rest. And if there had not been that support, they would have found it difficult, maybe impossible, to carry out the core work of the mission, the frontline tasks. I've just mentioned the team that's gone from the UK to Malawi, and we heard in the prayers that hopefully, visas permitting, there'll be a team coming from Malawi to us, Victor and Cuthbert. They'll be here to share with us many good things, extraordinary things that Eagles Relief is doing to bring good news and blessing to the poor villages in that country. They, Victor and Cuthbert, those of you who have met them, heard them, will know that they are remarkable men who have given up much to stay with eagles. 
But I'm sure that they will testify when they're here, and Tony and Diane, who kind of look after the books, can probably confirm this, that they will testify, Victor and Cope, that their work would not have got started or not been kept going without the support of people from All Saints and other Christians. The majority of Christians were not called to be the kind of Christian leaders that the disciples were, apostles and founders of churches. But for the kingdom to grow, for this church to grow, for people to come to faith, to know more of life in all its fullness, to step away from the things that entrap them, there is a need, too, for men like the disciples and women and generous supporters. As I was preparing this talk, I looked at that humdinger of a newspaper, the Church Times. There's always a back page profile or interview with someone. This week, and you might just remember the name, this week it was a couple from Shrewsbury called John and Elise Fletcher. They're now working, living in the slums of Bangkok with an organization called Urban Neighbors of Hope. They're friends of Alice Cameron Mitchell, who used to be our youth worker here, and who told us about them when she came to speak just over a year ago. Before moving to Bangkok, John was a GP in Shrewsbury. He and his wife have two sons under 10. They sold up everything to move to Bangkok, not to live in a nice comfortable villa on the outside, but to live in the rat-infested slums. And I, yesterday I was looking at the little, their website and seeing them moving around. And gosh, uh, none of us, I think, would have the bravery to live where they are living now. It would scare the pants of us. They are living right alongside the poor and the very destitute. It is a remarkable act. I don't know them at all, but it seems to me of, of obedience and trust and Christian compassion. And they have no salary. There is no organization paying their salary. So they are entirely reliant on the support of friends to keep them there, praying for them, encouraging them, and meeting their expenses. There is a great spiritual ministry of supporting others, especially those who are in the front line. So what does that mean for us? That means people who will pray for those on the front line. People who will encourage by a few words, a gesture, something practical for those on the front line. People who will be hospitable and generous with the time with the things they have and the time they have. People who will fund projects and people on the front line, whether that's local or further afield. And we may not be able to do exactly what the disciples did, but there isn't one of us here today who can't do something and probably is, is already doing some of those things on that list. So, what do we have in this episode? Jesus sending the disciples out on a practical test, a short-term mission assignment. It was successful. They saw much. Their faith was encouraged. And at the heart of that was a partnership between God and humans, the divine and the ordinary. There was, firstly, the teaching and direction of Jesus. 
Then they were empowered by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And then there was the, uh, their obedience, their willingness to go in trust. And then there was the generous support of many people who gave them bed and board. For our church to thrive, we need all those things. We need the clear call of Jesus, the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, men and women and young people who will stand there in the front line and those who will support in a myriad of ways. So may God grant that whatever our role, whatever our calling, wherever we are, whatever our resources, and however small or great our faith, we will play our part in the great commission that Jesus gives to all.